So we're in chapter 7 of Revelation. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 8 today. Now chapter 7 in the book of Revelation is sort of um, a parenthesis in the book of Revelation, explaining in greater detail how God keeps believers safe during the tribulation of the church age. This is the why of chapter 7 being given to us. And our verses from today begin with this phrase, after this I saw. And this is what we're told that John saw. After this, I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those having been sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 having been sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, from Gad 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 having been sealed. So here's an outline, the outline for today's sermon. First, we're going to look at why the book of Revelation so often seems to be anything but a revelation to us. And how the left-behind theology has been used to, to convince Christians that we are the greatest generation that has ever lived and that we will not live as every other generation of Christians have lived in the history of the world. After that, we're going to take a deep dive into the meaning of verses 2 through 4 and what is meant by the seal of the living God. And then we're going to talk about biblical numerology and about the 144,000. And then we'll end up talking about the importance of those that are spoken of in verse 3. For most evangelicals living today, the manner in which we have been taught to read the book of Revelation is based from a theological understanding called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism was conceived in the mind of a man named John Nelson Darby in the early 1800s. And then it was championed in the late 1800s by D.L. Moody and C.I. Schofield. You may know those two names. Moody is famous for the Moody Bible Institute. Schofield, he was the author of the Schofield Reference Bible, which told his readers how to view the prophecies of the Old Testament, and even those within the New Testament, all through the lens of dispensationalism. But there's two fundamental errors within dispensationalism. The first is that they view the church separate from the ethnic people of Israel. And the second is how they view the prophecies within the Bible in light of time. Take, for example, our opening verses, our opening verse from today. After this I saw. 
the dispensationalists will see that statement and they will say that everything that happens after that statement also happens after everything that is spoken of in chapters 5 and 6. And this is how they view all the book of Revelation, as a straight timeline, year after year, month after month, day after day, minute after minute. And they will say, after all, doesn't chapter 5 always follow chapter 4? And yes, chapter 5 always does follow after chapter 4. But again, we have to remember what the Bible is and what it's about. Because it is an accurate rendering of the faithfulness of God to his glory. And it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Which means that those that read the Bible as a chronological account of history, they're going to be disappointed in the Bible. And this is what has led to so many people saying that the Bible is full of contradictions. There are those that don't understand what and who the Bible is about. And they take issue with things like the second account of creation of humanity in Genesis chapter 2. They think, well, Genesis chapter 2, that should just have been about stuff after the creation week, not about stuff within the creation week. There are also those that take issue with the Gospels. Four accounts place one after another telling the same account, but each one does from a different angle. But for these people, they have issue because some of them don't seem to line up chronologically with each other. And what they don't understand is that the accounts given within the gospel, they're not given us to necessarily give us a historically accurate account of Jesus. Listen to what I just said. The accounts that are given to us are given to us to give us a complete revelatory account of Jesus. Those things happened. That's the important thing. The order in which they happened, that's not. And if you're reading the Bible or any part of it, in order that you can be convinced that Jesus is Lord, if that's why you're studying the Scriptures, you're going to be sorely disappointed because it's only the Holy Spirit, only He that can open the eyes of your heart and allow you to know that Jesus is Lord. Only He can do that. And the Bible is not written to prove that Jesus is Lord. It, like the book of John, is written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 20, verse 31. And there's a huge difference between proving and believing. This isn't to say that the accounts given with the Bible are not truthful or accurate, because they are. But again, the Bible, God did not write the Bible, did not pen the Bible for us to give us an, a historically accurate timeline. Because there's huge chunks of time within the Bible where there's nothing given to us. And then there are repetitive accounts told to us, just from differing views. Think about the books of 2 Kings and 2 Samuel and 2 Chronicles. The same period of time written from three different angles. 
But during the last 300 years of the oracles of God being given to man, God started taking man to the very place that John found himself at here and showing them the very same thing, the same events that John relates to us here in this revelation of Jesus Christ. Those other men, the ones that we know of as the Old Testament prophets, they also gave us revelations of Jesus Christ. And they, like this book, they used numbers, literally, rhetorically, and symbolically, but never mystically. The thing that we are meant to do when we study Scripture, when we are faced with Scriptures, the thing that we're meant to do is allow clear Scripture to always explain those things that are not clear. And the numbers within this book, this is one of those times where this is very needful. Because John used numbers a lot in this book, sometimes literally, such as the seven churches, and then sometimes symbolically, such as the seven stars or the seven spirits of God. Well, how then are we to determine which, how he uses these numbers, if they're symbolic or literal or rhetorical? We have to allow context to determine that for us. And again, this is why we have to keep in mind that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And since it has as its main theme the same thing that the rest of the Bible does, Jesus Christ, and since the Bible is not about man, we have to make sure that when we read the Bible, that we read it for its intended purpose, to reveal Christ to us, not primarily to give us facts or figures. And as I said a few weeks ago, in thinking through and trying to think through the book of Revelation, we, if you're thinking about it, think about it as if a, a way to drive your car or a thing, a place to drive your car on. And if it was a place to drive your car, it wouldn't be a highway, it would be a parking garage. It's not a means or a path to get us to our home. It speaks of and describes our home to us. And heaven is not our home. Christ is our home. Acts 17.28 tells us this of Christ. For in him we live and move and exist. And we're told in Psalm 90 verse 1 and 2, Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. Before the mountains were born, were brought forth the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Revelation is not a road leading home. Revelation is a revelation of home. And it goes nowhere but up. And it ends where it starts. It starts in chapter 1 in heaven. And it's going to end in chapter 21 in heaven. And just as time started when God created all things, time will end when he recreates all things, as told to us at the end of this book. And like the book of Revelation, a parking garage has a theme as well. If you've ever been in a parking garage, you can relate to what I'm saying here. It has a reason that it's created. A parking garage in an airport has differing levels to allow access to different levels, a level where you can drop people off at a level that you can pick people up at. And sometimes they even have different sections within that parking garage for the different terminals. 
And if you're not reading the signs in a parking garage, it doesn't make any difference how good a driver you are. Chances are that you're going to end up in the wrong place, frustrated, angry. And if you're desiring to get to the terminal level at a parking garage, at an airport, it never matters where you think that should be. It doesn't matter whether or not you think that the form and flow of that parking garage is wrong or off. If you don't follow the signs that are there, you're not going to be happy. If you don't follow the predetermined, pre-designated signs and the design that the creator of that parking garage laid out, you're not going to be happy with the results. And the same is true for the Christian who reads the book of Revelation as they want it to be read. If you don't follow the theme, the form and the flow of this book, you're going to end up confused and perhaps even in the wrong place theologically. Again, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his, sla his slaves the things which must soon happen. Revelation 1.1. There's the theme and there's the flow. Everything that is spoken of in the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ and is given us to show us what must happen soon. So I'm going to give you a spoiler alert now. Every time that there's a sevenfold judgment is given in this book, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, they're all representative, and they're all representative of the same event. And if you try to read the judgments of God as given to us starting in chapter 6 and then ending in chapter 9 as happening one after another, you're going to get confused, you're going to get sidetracked, and you're going to miss the focus and meaning of what is being told to us. But having said that, what we know of as chapter 1, that is the setup for the revelation of Jesus Christ. It speaks of Him. It describes Him. And then what we know of chapters 2 and 3 then focus our attention on the most important organism that God has ever created, his church. And we really have not been taught to esteem our salvation as being very high because we haven't been taught the value of the church that we have been made part of when we were saved. How often do you think, when you think of your salvation, do you actually think that you were saved to be part of the church, of a church, instead of actually just thinking that I was saved because God loves me? And because this is true, we miss the meaning and the flow of this book. Because beginning in chapter 4, we along with John are then taken to the throne room of grace, the same place that the prophets of Old Testament were taken to. And there we are given a heavenly view of the telling of the history of all creation, just as they were. And very often we fail to see the importance of the church to God in this telling. When we're told of the four horsemen in chapter 6, we think only, what does that mean to me personally and not the church throughout history? When we think of the fifth seal and the saints that are under that altar, 
We only do so thinking, well, what does that mean to me personally? What's expected of me personally? Instead of understanding that what it speaks of is part of the first four seals being opened. And those saints that are under that altar of God, these are the saints of all time. And these numbers, the numbers of the seals, they're all symbolic. The numbers on the seals on that scroll, again, they're all symbolic. The number of horsemen that are linked with the seals on the scrolls, they're all symbolic as well. Okay, since I've already given you one spoiler alert, I might as well give you another. Because in Revelation 13, we're told of the beast from the sea and the earth in, the verse, in verse 18, we are told, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of man, and his number is 666. Throughout the book of Revelation, there's numbers given, lots of numbers, 4, 7, 144. But this number, 666, this is the one that everybody knows. This is the one that captivates everybody's imagination. Conspiracy theorists love that verse. They, speaks, they say that it speaks of everybody from Emperor Nero all the way to Ronald Reagan. But let me show you how that number is just representative. In the creation week, what day was man created on? The sixth day. What number in the Bible has always been representative of man in the Bible? And then in chapter 6, now the chapter number, that's not divinely inspired. But in chapter 6, after the souls of this ever, every saint has ever been saved, as predetermined by God, as told to us in verse 11 there, we are told that another seal is cracked open. What seal is that? The sixth one. And then God begins pouring out his wrath on man. And it's the created realm that suffers the lion's share of the wrath as told to us in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 6. And in those verses, chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, in those verses, we are told of a specific number of created things being affected by the wrath of God. Want to venture a guess as to how many that is? If you guess six, you're right. And there's the second six. And then beginning in verse 15, people, classes of people are spoken of. And would you like to venture a guess of how many types of people are spoken of there? Not five, not seven, six. There's the third six. And here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of man, and his number is 666. See, we, we fail to understand that Satan is not our enemy. We are. We have always been our greatest enemy, and we are and have always been the greatest sinners and offenders of God. When Satan, when he was created, he was not created perfect in the image of God. We were. Well, isn't he the ruler of the world, you're thinking? Yes, he is. 
but only because we sinned and we turned over our dominion to him when we sinned and we moved ourselves from the family of God and adopted ourselves into his. When he sinned, he only affected himself. And when those angels sinned that followed him, they only affected themselves. But when we sinned, our sin not only cast us from the family of God, not only killed us, it also altered and negatively affected all creation. And this is one of the reasons that creation is now having the wrath of God being poured out on it and why it must be recreated. Yes, Satan is our mortal enemy. He is the accuser of the brethren, as told to us in Revelation 12.10. But we, saints, we are our greatest enemy. He is a liar and the father of lies, as told to us in John 8.44. But listen to me about this. No one will ever lie to you more then you will. We need to understand that it is never the devil that ever makes us do anything. We desire evil. He just feeds that desire and then loves to watch as we self-destruct. The number of the beast is much like the mark of the beast. It's symbolic. And when the sixth seal is open, because we haven't been taught to think of the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ and the importance of the church, we don't understand why the sixth seal and that great day that is spoken of, why that only happens after that last saint to die as God predetermined as they do, why that actually matters. This is all given to us because God knows he knows the persecution and the suffering that they and you are all going to go through. And this is why he once again focuses in on the church and the security of the believers and the importance of our salvation. In verse 1, we're introduced to this event when John says that he saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea, or on any tree. Many times in the Bible, God uses pictures as descriptors. This is what he's doing when he's showing us these four angels standing at the four corners and holding back the four winds. These are all pictures. And they're given to us to demonstrate the reality that God is sovereign over all things. The four winds, they're figurative for the entire known world. And we know this because of places such as Jeremiah 49, verse 36, and Daniel chapter 8, verse 8, and Mark chapter 13, verse 27, which says, And he will send forth the angels, and he will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. It's encompassing all of God's creation. Four winds are also figurative for the four horsemen that are told to us in chapter 6. And we know this because these horses and horsemen are the same ones that Zechariah saw and spoke of in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Verse 5 of Zechariah 6, we're told that when Zechariah asked who these four horsemen were, he was told, 
These are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. And these four angels are holding back the wind. And that's figurative as well. But having said that, a little known fact, this is just a little factoid, just going to out there. If God ever did hold back the wind, now we in Oklahoma, sometimes we can get tired of the wind, but if God ever did hold back the wind, everything on the face of the planet of earth would die within a matter of weeks. It would become much too hot at the equator, much too cold at the polar ends, and all the lakes and the seas, they would become stagnant, and the ecosystems within them, the one that all of life is built off would all cease to exist very quickly. But the winds that these four angels are holding back, this isn't the real wind. It's not the wind that we in Oklahoma know so well. It's representative, and it represents the forces of destruction that the four horsemen of chapter 6 bring with them. And the reason that they're told to hold back the four winds is then told to us in verses 2 and 3. Look at verses 2 and 3. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads. So the four corners are representative for the entirety of creation. Not just in volume, but also in all of time. And the importance of the children of God can't be any more clearly stated than what we have just been told. God is going to destroy all things. Destroy all things. And within that all things, that includes all of humanity as well, with a single exception within all things. That exception are his slaves. And within these two verses, we're meant to pull out the importance of not only being a slave of God, but also what it is that we're being sealed and protected from. Because we would like to think in our minds, we want to believe that being sealed by God, that's going to protect us from hard things from persecution, from the effects of sin, of Adam. But that's not what we're being protected from. The seal that is spoken of in our verses today, it's much like a brand that is placed on a cow. And most certainly, it is representative. But we're meant to understand what it is and what it means. The importance of the seal of God is spoken of again in the trumpet judgments of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 6 of Revelation, we're told, they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth or any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. And when we're told of this account again in the bold judgments, we see the effects of the protection of God that we're told of here. Chapter 16, verse 2 speaks of that judgment. There we're told, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who have the mark of the beast and who worship his image. So there's a a seal or a mark given to the elect of God, as told to us in our chapter from today. 
and there's a seal or a mark on the children of the beast and those who worship his image. And again, we've been poorly taught. We don't understand. We think that we have to be careful. Don't take the mark of the beast. Don't get that microchip implanted. Make sure you don't get that barcode tattooed on your forehead or on your arm. We fail to realize that every human has the mark of the beast already. We're born with it. It's in our DNA. And those that are sealed with the seal of God, they have been rebranded with the brand or seal of God. And they can never, ever have the mark of the beast ever again. And this is why this seal that is spoken of today is so important and why we need to understand what this seal is. What is this seal? It's that which we're told of in John chapter 6, verse 27. Christ said, Don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him the Father, God, has set His seal. It's the same seal that is spoken of here in our verses today. But what is it? 2 Timothy 2.19 is helpful in understanding what that seal is. 2 Timothy 2.19 tells us, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. There's the seal. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to depart from wickedness. The Lord knows who are His. The same thing that Jesus said in John 15, 16, when he said, you didn't choose me, I chose you, and appointed that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide. The choosing of God, by God, for God, that comes with a promise made by Jesus. Because Jesus said that he would leave and return again. But it was his leaving that made manifest the promise that he gave to us. Do you remember the promise as we went through the book of John? That promise was a gift. What was the promise? John 14, verses 16 through 19. I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, the paraclete, that he may be with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't know or see him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. The seal of God that we're being sealed with, it's not an it. It's a he. And he is someone that no one chooses. He chooses them. And in him, you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. That's the seal. And since the seal that is spoken of here is specific, and since the Bible tells us what this seal is, the Holy Spirit of God given to all of his saints, 
So what then are we supposed to make of the 144,000 of verses 4 through 8? Because they're specific in number, and even that they all come from specific tribes within ethnic Israel. What is that all about? Well, let's consider who these are from the next time that they are mentioned, these 144,000, because they're mentioned again in the Bible. Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, mentioned 144,000, and will tell us who they are. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000. There they are. Having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads, there's the seal. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of a harpist playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn that song except 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. And these are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. And these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes, for they have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So there's indications within these verses given to us of who these 144,000 are. First, we're told that they are given His name and the name of His Father, a name written on their foreheads. Back in chapter 3, the saints who overcome are promised this, I will write on Him my name and the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name, verse 12. The song that the 144,000 sing, we're told that it's a new song, a song that only those that were of their number can sing. And then we're told what the qualifier is to be of their number. They must be purchased from the earth. And then we hear that song that they sing in the book of Revelation. At least one stanza of it. And we hear it sung in chapter 5. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth, verses 9 and 10. And the 144,000 of our chapter today, they're all given a title in verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. Because that title will let us know who these 144,000 are. And that title is a heavenly, glorious title. Do you see it? The slaves of God. This title is reserved only for the saints of God. The saints that are spoken of here in chapter 7 and then again in chapter 14. And Paul said this of himself in, in Philippians 1.1. He said, Paul and Timothy, he called himself a slave of Christ Jesus. Doulos. Same word as here. And that word doulos is used over 127 times in the New Testament. And in chapter 1 of Revelation, in the first verse when we're told who this book is a revelation of, even there John is described just as 144,000 were. Revelation 1.1 again, revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his slaves the things which must soon happen. So did he mean there that this revelation is not for you? 
Is that what he's saying? Or is this for all saints for all time? And he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave, John. But then you're asking, David, why the explicit mentioning of the tribes of Israel and then the numbering of 144,000? Well, remember that often numbers are used as descriptors. There were 12 tribes of Israel specifically given when actually there was more than that. There were 12 disciples, a specific number given when actually we know there was more than that. And the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven is full of that number 12. And since we are told that those that overcome are to be given the name of the new Jerusalem in chapter 3, we need to consider the 12s that are spoken of in the new Jerusalem. Turn with me to Revelation 21. Beginning in verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a precious stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall. It had twelve gates, and at those gates twelve angels. And the names have been written on those gates, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. Verses 10 through 12. And then verse 13 describes the gate. And then in verse 14, we're told something new about this new Jerusalem. Verse 14 says, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And then an angel is given a gold measuring rod and told, Measure the city. Would you like to venture a guess as what the measurement comes back when he measures the city? Verse 17, and he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The number 144,000 is representative of of a certain distinct sort of humans. Those who we are told of in Revelation 5, 9, those that say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Just like we're told here in verse 4 of our chapter, I heard the number of those having been sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And in chapter 14, verse 6, we read, Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who inhabit the earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Representative. But if it's representative, then, why the specific number in the tribes of Israel? Why are they listed? And this is why we need to think biblically where we need to go back to the Old Testament books and think through the listing of the people of the tribes of Israel when they're listed. Here's Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness in Sinai and at the tent of meeting on the first of the, first of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, 
take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel. You and Aaron shall number them by their armies. The numbering of the tribes of Israel was for the specific reason of gathering the God's army together to go out to war. And this is why these verses are given to us in this manner today. And as we've already determined, they're not saved for any other purpose than the divine will of God. And they were saved precisely for a purpose, to bring glory to God by walking in the good works which he had already prepared for us to walk in, Ephesians 2.10. What good works are we supposed to walk in? Those that are spoken of with 144,000 in Revelation 14.4, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. Saints, we are saved to be his army of soldiers. And we have been mustered just as the children of Israel were in the book of Numbers for the specific purpose to wage war. And this is why we need the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God as told to us in Ephesians 6.17. We're to understand that our salvation is us being sealed by God as him, by him, for his glory. And when we are sealed, we are sealed as an army of saints sent out as victors to proclaim the excellency of the one who has purchased us from Satan by his blood. And this is the essence of what we're told in Romans 8, verses 31 through 37. If you've ever actually read that and thought, what is he talking about? Listen to Romans 8, verses 31 through 37. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also... With him, graciously give us all things. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one to condemn? Because Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised and who is now at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So who then will separate us from the love of God? And then he begins this list of things. Will affliction, turmoil, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, the sword? And then verse 36, for just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all the day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb of God for his Father, made to be the true Israel of God. And we've been mustered to go into battle. And we conquered the same way that Christ did, by doing the same exact thing that he did, the same thing that he commended the saints in Ephesus in chapter 2 for doing, persevering in this life. 
The same thing that he commended the saints in Philadelphia in chapter 3 for doing. Persevering in the midst of suffering. Praising God from whom all blessings flow. Just as Christ did. And to be able to do this in this life, we must know what the value of being the redeemed of God is. And this is, time, this is why we need to, sp- to spend time in the Word, meditating on the reality of who we are and what He has done for us. Has He just saved us to protect us from hell? To give us our best life now? This is why we need to be in the church, edifying the body, serving alongside of one another, building ourselves up in Christian love so that we can understand why we were saved. And because we cannot do this on our own. We were never saved to be Lone Ranger Christians. But you can take it to the bank, you were saved to be a ranger. Listen to Revelation 19, verses 11 through 18. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True. There's our Lord. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood. His name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on horses. Do you know who that is? It's you, saint. It's every saint, every blood-bought Christian. And listen to how we conquer. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he strikes down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. There we are. With him. By him. In him. As he conquers and makes all things new. Saints, He is the Word. He's the truth. And He's faithful. Is He not? And He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He is the one that this is a revelation of. Saints, I implore you Consider your salvation. Consider your Savior. What you have been saved from and saved to. 
for the praise of God and for His glory. Let's pray.